Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Howard Tierski, author of Winning Digital Customers. Howard, welcome. And uh, I really loved your book, and I'm excited to have you on today. Oh, well, thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for reading it, and I'm so happy to be here. Um, Howard, let's start off with you giving us about your professional background, which I, I thought is really interesting. Sure. So um, I founded a, uh, a digital agency slash consulting company uh, called From, the Digital Transformation Agency. We work with large brands to help them uh, update their customer journey and overall business model to be absolutely relevant and successful in today's digital world, which has changed so much from what it was just a few years ago. And uh, you were just telling me when we were talking some of the interesting clients you work with, but in particular, the NFL. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with the NFL? Yeah, we do a lot of work for, for many companies uh, in media, and entertainment, sports, et cetera. Um, we do a lot of digital work with the NFL. We also work with um, NBC Universal. We've worked with the theme parks, many of their cable channels. Uh, we've worked with CBS on the Star Trek website. We work a lot with uh, A&E Entertainment with the Schubert organization, with projects that relate to uh, Broadway theaters, um, other, other uh, you know, kind of media and venue, Madison Square Garden um, on different projects for them. So uh, yeah, we like about half of the work that we do is for some aspect of the media and entertainment business, which is of course itself quite diverse. That's great. And how many employees do you have in your company? Oh, we have a hundred. Wow, very, very nice. And you're the entrepreneur who built that business? Well, very much a team effort. Uh, I have a group that's been with me. Uh, we formed it about four of us and quickly became about six or seven people that are on the leadership team. And many has, have been with uh, the company for over 10 years. So very much a team effort. But I'm, if you will, the, uh, the original founder, sure. We have many entrepreneurs who listen to this show and we have listeners uh, that uh, sign up from over 52 countries uh, that listen to this. Wow. And uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs always ask questions about like, you know, how fast did it take you to get to 100 employees? How many years have you been into this? Well, so 14, this is our 14th year. Um, and uh, we, um, we've gone up and down a little bit. Within two years, we were over 70 employees. Um, wow. And then, yeah, and then uh, we had, uh, you know, the nature of the business uh, that I'm in, it can be somewhat project driven. All of a sudden we can get hired, especially in our earlier days. Uh, we might get a, a huge project that we might need 30 or 40 people on that one project. And so a couple of big projects and you can be quite busy. And then of course, if the uh, volume, you know, the volume can be a little bit volatile. So uh, we discovered um, probably two years in, we were at 70 by four years in, I, we might've just been at 50, you know, that kind of thing. So it's going up and down, but um, over the last uh, year, certainly we've seen a lot of growth, um, probably the fastest period of growth we've ever had, perhaps maybe, well, when we first started, of course, you have that immediate going from zero kind of growth, uh, uh, largely driven by the increased uh, priority of digital transformation uh, driven by COVID. 
I ran a multimedia company. That's what it was called back in 1996. And we did big um, projects for large banks and pharmaceutical companies. So we sold mm-hmm. the company. So why did you write this book? Well, you know, I spent uh, several decades working with large brands, helping them through digital transformation. We may not have called it that every point along the way, different buzzwords from multimedia to internet to e-commerce to, you know, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. But I've been doing that for many, many years. And the importance of it has just magnified over this last period of time, because today the world has changed so much that companies have a choice to either figure out how to transform rapidly enough to stay relevant, or they risk becoming irrelevant. And as we see increasingly increasing numbers of, uh, you know, unfortunately, like sort of dead bodies littering the field of companies that have not succeeded in remaining relevant for a digital world. So having picked up a lot of, um, well, frankly, had been a part of a lot of successes, which is great. And also a, a lot of things that didn't work out that well over the many decades that I've been doing this, I got a chance to observe and really get a sense of what works and what doesn't work when trying to drive big change, transformational digital change in large enterprises. And so um, that's the work that I've been doing for years. Why did I write the book? I, I sort of two reasons, really. One is because I wanted to, uh, to, to, to get it all down and to kind of share what I've learned with a, with a broader audience, just as a kind of a personal contribution to the vast number of people that are dealing with some of these challenges. And secondly, as a marketing uh, vehicle, to be perfectly transparent, um, I think that books are a great way of differentiating yourself in a marketplace to have a book that's recognized, that's well-reviewed. In our case, we were able to market it well enough to get it onto the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So uh, that also acts as a, as a business card and a business tool. And it allows any prospective company who's thinking about working with us, if they really want to dive in and understand how do we really think, how do we approach this type of work, they have a very detailed guide to that, which they can read as much of or as little of they want as they want, but it saves us a lot of explaining. And I find increasingly clients, by the time they come to us now, very often have read the book or part of the book. And, uh, you, you know, they kind of know who they're talking to and, and how we think. And they're asking much more detailed questions about our approach, which is kind of cool, rather than having to kind of start from the beginning and explain our approach to driving transformation, our approach to user-centered design, design thinking, uh, driving organizational change, et cetera. I actually think this book should be read not just by CEOs, but um, boards of companies. I think should be uh, reading this book because they would get a better sense of why this money is being spent and how to spend it smartly and also how to ask smart questions. And same with angel investors who and venture capitalists interested in this space. I think it would make a lot of sense for them to read it. In the beginning of the book, you mentioned you were contacted by Toys R Us, but they were out of time before they even uh, before they could engage you. What, what would you rec- have recommended to them? Because they were at one point, uh, a killer, a space killer, right? That's what they uh, were known for because they dominated the toy market. I think that any retailer today needs to figure out how to make a physical, you know, there's two ways to succeed in retailing and many approach both. One is online retailing and one is through brick and mortar stores. Obviously, Toys R Us was doing the majority of their business through their brick and mortar stores. So, okay, there's definitely, I mean, the majority of purchases are still made at brick and mortar stores. So there's no question that there's still a business running a physical store. Apple clearly runs extremely successful physical stores, despite being a very digitally, uh, you know, effective business. And so, but the, the challenge you have in running a physical store is you have to answer one extremely important question. What makes it worth the trip? 
why should someone get in their car and come to your store when they can potentially order whatever you have from Amazon or some other online retailer, which generally speaking is going to be more convenient. It's going to be less effort than coming to your store. And I think in the case of Toys R Us, they simply didn't create a compelling enough in-store experience. Toys R Us for years, I remember when Toys R Us first opened in Chicago, where I grew up. So this is what now, 45 years ago or something like that. And I remember seeing the commercials for this new toy store. They showed a castle. They implied in the commercial that the actual toy store looked like a giant castle. And when you went in, you know, magic pixie dust flew through the air and Jeffrey the giraffe, who looked like he was about 10 stories tall, was walking around helping you pick out toys. And there was this, it was this amazing magical experience, which clearly they envisioned from the very beginning of the company as being part of what they wanted their brand to be. And for those of you who've ever been able to get to the New York flagship Toys R Us store, when it was open, it had a giant Ferris wheel and giant two-story dollhouse. And it was, it was real, it was a tourist attraction because it was such an amazing experience to go. However, if you've been to your local Toys R Us, where 99% of all Toys R Us shoppers would go, you went into a store filled with metal shelves with boxes of stuff which you were not allowed to open, surly employees and long lines. And that was not a magical experience for parent <laughs> or child. And so they simply weren't fulfilling that, that, that brand promise that they tried to make all along the way in which they even tried to execute through their Times Square store. Uh, you know, having worked with a lot of retailers though, you know, I wanna say I'm empathetic to the challenge because retail margin can be slim and one of the challenges that any company needs to ask today is not only how can I create a customer experience that is competitive, that attracts the customer, that makes the customer you know, really feel taken care of, that as I talk about in my book, that inspires customer love. Companies that are successful today are creating experiences that inspire the love of their customers. But very often that costs money. And so you have to figure out how to make sure you have an approach where the investments you make in customer experience come back to you so that you have an ecological ecosystem. That's absolutely doable, but it requires the right strategy. It's not just a matter of sort of throwing money at doing nicer, nicer things for your customer. And that's a lot of what I get into in detail in the book. How do you figure out not only how to create a better customer experience, but what types of improved customer experiences will be strategic in driving the customer behaviors, which equal business success. Yeah, like build a bear. That's a great experience of actually building the bear and so forth. And it's a reason to come in. But you're right. And when you go to Toys R Us, all it is is a warehouse full of stuff that they won't let you uh, play with. So, and I had been to the New York store and that was a lot of fun. That's where Tom Hanks shot the uh, movie. Uh, I forget what yeah. that was called. Where big, I think that might have been F.A.O. Schwartz, but right. Similar, similer though. Yeah. 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 That's right. It was F.A.O. Schwartz. But What's a similar the, a similar approach, right? To right. Uh, you know, and to to creating a, a shopping experience that was delightful. I have to tell you though, and I totally agree with you about Build a Bear. But I have to tell you a very short and of no business value story about <laughs> Build a Bear, which is that my oldest daughter, who's now a junior in college, when she was young, she had a teddy bear that she loved, and we took her to my my uh, my sister actually, her aunt took her to Build a Bear for the first time when she was three or four years old to get a new, to, to, you know, buy another teddy bear. She was so into teddy bears. So she takes her there 
And, you know, the way Build-A-Bear works, you go get the, the skin, basically, right? You get the empty yeah. bear that you yeah. pick out, and then you take it to the stuffing machine, and then they put all the stuff, you know, the, the, the cottony stuff inside the bear, and they stuff it for you, and then they sew it up. Well, halfway through the stuffing machine experience, my three-year-old daughter bursts into tears. She is hysterically <laughs> upset. This is just too gruesome for her to see, this, you know, to see the bear get stuffed. So I think Bill the Bear is wonderful, but I just, I just had to tell that family story. That's a good, that's a good story. Uh, what's the process for building rapport long-term with customers? Because you were just talking about that now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in the book, I talk about uh, an even grander ambition, which is how, how do you inspire the love of your customers? Because I would argue that companies should be uh, very ambitious in terms of the kinds of emotional connection and engagement that they're looking for from their customers. The businesses that have the highest margins, the greatest growth, the greatest value tend to be businesses like Apple or you know, some of the big social media companies. Businesses that, uh, it doesn't have to be a tech business though, uh, equally businesses like Disney or Harley Davidson. Businesses that customers are really committed to, they see almost as part of their identity. This is the most successful level of customer engagement that you can get. So, so how do you do that? Well, in the book, I talk about a model, <laughs> pardon me, that we've developed uh, for inspiring customer love. And it came by sort of reverse engineering what we saw happening at a lot of different companies that were successful. And it's three levels. It's conceptually pretty simple. The execution of it is not always so simple. But the first level is to thoroughly and consistently meet the needs of your customers, which sounds simple and obvious, but the reality is that a huge percentage of businesses, when we, when we go in or others go in and study customer satisfaction and the stages that the customer goes through from finding the company to shopping, to purchasing, to using the product or service or whatever it is, whatever that customer journey is, that there are almost always many points of confusion, frustration, disappointment, et cetera in a large percentage of companies. So that's the first thing is to say, how do we make sure that we're giving them a very solid fulfillment of their needs? The second level is to occasionally go beyond that, to periodically delight the customer in a way that is not expected and not necessarily required in order to meet their needs, but which gives them something extra that they like. And the third is to stand for something that the customer also stands for, to share some value with the customer. And certainly we can look at companies like Nike supporting Black Lives Matter, or on the other end of the political spectrum, Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby supporting conservative right-wing social values. And not to even take a point of view from a political perspective, but it's easy to see in the numbers that both of these stands were extremely beneficial uh, from a business perspective to those companies because while in all those cases, it turned off some customers, no question, it made the customers that resonated with those social values so much more emotionally connected to and loyal to the brand that it way more than made up for the loss of customers that they repelled. Um, and, but th those types of values don't have to be political values either. Brands like Apple or Godiva or Harley-Davidson, or, or the, they clearly stand for something that isn't political as well. Something that maybe, uh, you know, I mean, Apple, for example, I would say stands for something along the lines of empowering individual creativity, which clearly is not a, a social statement, but it nevertheless is a, um, is a value that, of course, their loyal fans share. So this is the sort of three-part um, formula. And um, one of the things that we also, you know, when we sort of discovered that formula and applied it in a number of places and saw that it really worked, 
we start to ask ourselves, well, well, why does this work? Why does this formula work? And uh, part of what we were trying to figure out, is there more to it or whatnot? And here's what we discovered through our research is that when, when, you, when you meet a customer's needs consistently, they draw a meaning from that. And it's actually meaning, the meaning that people give to things that creates an emotional connection. You know, if I give you a, a rose, if I give my wife a rose or I give someone else flowers, you know, they may have an emotional reaction, but it's not because I've given them a plant, you know, it's because they associate some meaning to those flowers. And so the question is, when you consistently meet your customers' needs, what's the meaning that they derive? And the meaning that we learned from our research is that they understand me. This business understands me because they wouldn't be meeting all my needs. They wouldn't be able to meet all my needs if they didn't understand me. They have to try because that's why they're getting paid. So I don't necessarily assume that it means they, they care or anything, but it means they, they get me because that's why they're able to come back with an offering that meets my needs. And then it's that next level, but when they do something extra that they don't have to do to get my money, that I derive a different meaning from, which is that they care about me. They must value me or they wouldn't be doing this extra thing they don't have to do to get paid. And then when you get to the third level and we share a common value, then we create a main meaning, they are like me. This business actually is like me in some way. And if we think about even in our personal lives, the people that we like to associate, if you met someone at a party and you discovered after you talked to them for a little while that they really got you, they really understood you, you know, they seem to really get you and they seem to care about you personally and you had some commonality, there was some similarities between you, that's a fertile ground for what could be a relationship, whether it's a friendship or you're gonna date or whatever. Um, and so I think it's a similar kind of emotional triggers that we're, 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 we're touching in people when, we, when a brand convey these kind of ideas and inspire those types of meanings, even though the customer may not be thinking about these things consciously, the research were able to kind of untangle what happens in the psychology and figure out what the causality is between these behaviors and that emotional feeling the customers have. Yeah, I mean, you gave some great examples before, like Harley Davidson. I mean, they just have cool, but Yamaha and the other motorcycle companies don't engender that kind of feeling that a, a Harley right. does, right? right. And, uh, I, and I, you I, could well, similarly say Apple versus Dell, right? Disney versus Paramount Pictures, you know? And there's a lot of examples like that. Clearly it's not just, oh, people love movie studios or love computer companies or love motorcycle companies. As you say, there's something those brands are doing beyond just their basic products. Yeah, I mean, look, Steve Jobs, I remember the iPod, he was triple the cost to buy an iPod compared to ScanDisk and the others, selling basically the same product that could do exactly the same thing and they couldn't compete with him. I mean, he was, people were willing to pay three times as much for his product. Um, mm -hmm. We have a question from the audience. To what factors would you attribute Warby Parker's success in the retail realm, having built their brand as an online company only? What, what do they do as a bricks and mortar entity that stands out? Sure. Well, another uh, study that we did looked to answer a different question. And I think that Warby Parker is a good example of it. Uh, is everyone familiar with Warby Parker? And oh, yeah. They are? Warby, yeah, for Warby, sure. Warby, Warby Parker is in the eyeglasses business. And so they are a, a, a company you can go online, you can bring your um, prescription. You know, you have to get a prescription from an optometrist or whatnot. 
And then you can type that in at Warby Parker and they will allow you to pick from a thousands and thousands of frames and they will make your glasses and they will send them to you. And they are way cheaper than if you went to your local Pearl Vision or your local strip mall optometrist to get glasses. And that is essentially, and I would ask the person who asked the question, is that a, a reasonable description or anything else you'd want to add just to make sure the audience knows who we're talking about? Yeah, I think everybody, yeah, we're all good with that. Okay, just want to make sure. So, so, um, so the three things that most successful businesses in today's digital age do, um, the first is hyper-convenience, making it super easy to ac accomplish your goal or your task, whether you're trying to order groceries or glasses or get entertained or whatever it is, make, making it as absolutely as easy as possible. You know, Netflix, when you finish an episode of Stranger Things, they go five, four, three, two, one, and they start the next one so that you don't have to take that extra effort of finding the remote control and pushing the next button, right? So it's that obsession over convenience and reducing effort. Um, the second thing that successful digital companies do is, uh, is proactive personalization. They, they give you an experience tailored to your needs. <laughs> and the third is a massive value shift. Essentially, they just give you more for less. You know, Google Office compared to Microsoft Office, well, for one thing, it's free. Uh, Dropbox, free. Or if you want to pay you know, for a certain additional premium features, it's way cheaper than it would cost you to have your own server, uh, you know, acting as a file server, things like that. So Spotify, all, you know, all the music you could possibly want to listen to for $9 a month or $12 a month or whatever they're charging now. So, so this is the third thing, massive value shift. So we look at Warby Parker. First of all, there's a massive value shift. The glasses are just way, way, way cheaper than if you bought them elsewhere. I think that's a huge part of the, of the, of the appeal. Um, secondly, uh, a proactive personalization. One of the things, uh, that, there's probably many things that they do by way of personalization at Warby Parker, but one of the things that they do, and they were a pioneer in using augmented reality to allow you to virtually try on a pair of glasses. So you weren't just going to a website and clicking on a pair of glasses and saying, I'm going to buy it. You could actually take a picture of your face and you could see how do those glasses look on me. So clearly highly personalized shopping experience. Now I'm shopping for glasses on a picture of my face instead of just, and in fact, you can even see it in 3D. You can literally turn like this, looking at your phone and it will show you how those glasses will look on your face, highly personalized. And then lastly, or firstly, convenience. Well, they have, um, you know, it's an online store, right? So compared to having to go, like we talked about earlier, get in your car, drive somewhere, the mere fact that they're online gives you convenience and they also give you convenience in another way, which is that I don't know if you've ever, ever gone to an optometrist or a glasses store and looked around and not seen what you want. So you drive to another one and you drive to another one. You're looking for a particular look. You don't love the frames they have. Well, Warby Parker, because they have the benefit of that kind of endless aisle of a digital store, they have way more frames than you could ever find in any physical brick and mortar uh, optometrist. And therefore, they give you the further convenience of, you know, I mean, if you can't find a frame at Warby Parker that you like, uh, you know, I, I don't know where you're going to find one because it's like not finding the product you want on Amazon. They have massive selection. So I think that's, you know, uh, what I would say about Warby Parker. And I think the same basic three principles can be applied to almost any business today, whether you're talking about Uber or Netflix or anything. So how is loyalty measured? Essentially, how often or, or much does a customer have to spend to be considered loyal? Mm. Well, you know, it kind of depends what you mean by loyal. One of the things I talk about in my book is in business today, you know, I, well, 
let me start by saying this. As I said earlier, customer emotional connection is one of the most valuable assets you can have in a business. And that's why I was talking earlier about how, you, how do you inspire the love of your customer? So when I talk about customer love, some people say, well, isn't that the same as loyalty? And my answer is, well, maybe if, if, if you look up the word loyalty in the dictionary, you know, it certainly can be seen as a strong emotional connection, you know, soldiers on the battlefield that are loyal to each other and won't leave a man behind despite they risk their own lives to save each other because of loyalty. But that's not what we mean when we talk about loyalty in business. When we talk about loyalty in business today, typically in the context of things like loyalty programs, we're not actually talking about an emotional connection. It's just another use that has developed for the word loyalty. In business today, when we speak of loyalty, we are generally referring to behavior, not feelings. And what is the behavior that we're referring to? Generally speaking, it's repeat transactions. If I go to the same gas station and fill up my tank every week, they think I'm loyal. Now, do I feel loyal? Quite possibly not at all. But I'm behaving in this thing we call loyal. So to the question, if by loyal, you mean the emotional loyalty, I would suggest to you that frequency of purchase may not be a good metric. It's a metric. It could be a relevant metric, but it doesn't necessarily tell you whether someone's loyal or not. Uh, and of course, depending on the industry that you're in, it could be very different, right? If I buy a Maserati every two years, I could be extremely loyal. But if I only go to Dunkin' Donuts every two years, I'm probably not very loyal. So you have to consider what are you selling and what's the purchase price and how frequently is someone in need of the thing that you're, that you're selling. Um, but if you're talking about loyalty from, and, and I guess that kind of answers the second part, which is if you're talking about the more classic business meaning of the word loyalty, um, for, meaning frequency of behavior, you know, then you need to ask yourself, well, what is the um, what is the normal frequency? But I would say what you want to ask yourself is, when the customer has the opportunity to engage a business to provide what you provide, and you are an appropriate provider, how what percentage of the time do you get the business? And if the answer is more than seventy five percent. As I'll just throw out a rough number, I think that's that's pretty loyal behavior. So, for example, if I every whenever I have a need to fly out of the New York area, I'm highly likely to fly on United Airlines, among other reasons, because of their loyalty program. Again, not because I love them, but because they've they've got a deal for me. Loyalty programs are more about discounting and and creating a better value for the customer and rewarding them, not about connecting with them emotionally. So that's a but. Anyway, it's still a good deal. So they get my they get my behavioral loyalty, unless I'm flying someplace they don't fly. <laughs> you know, if I want to go to uh, some city they don't have a direct route to, then of course I'll grab another airline. So I think that's behavioral loyalty. Uh, but again, I think you want to find other metrics to measure emotional loyalty, which arguably is more powerful and more important because United Airlines can't succeed in charging me way more for a flight than somebody else will. To use Mark's example. You know, Apple is char was charging three times more than SanDisk for an MP3 player. If United tries to charge me three times more than Delta to get to San Francisco, forget it. Maybe they could charge me 6% more, maybe 5% more. But if it's substantially more, then I'm not going to be like, forget it. I'll take Delta. But if it's the same price, well, then they can persuade me with their loyalty program. Well, because frankly, their loyalty program is discounting. It's really just discounting. And I don't mean that about United. It's any any almost every loyalty program because... What the loyalty program says is I pay them $1,000 for a flight 
and they give me some points that are worth $100 that I can use in the future. So what they've really done is created a model where instead of it being $1,000, it's $900 for the flight. And so it's discounting and discounting certainly can drive repeat transactions. It can drive sales. There's no question. Um, but obviously at the cost of you know lowering the price. You had a quote from Forbes that 84% of digital transactions, uh, transformations, not transactions, but transformations fail. Why is that? Mostly people. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, look, it's, first of all, it's very uh, challenging. Digital transformation is challenging for, uh, for a variety of reasons. So let's look at what some of them are. First of all, real transformation is, is ambitious. You're trying to change so many things. You're trying to change the customer experience first and foremost. But in order to accomplish that, you often have to change many other things like your technology, your business processes, staffing teams, organizational structure, sometimes your business model. So that's a lot to change. And whenever you're taking something and trying to change that many things, there's risk. And of course, risk when realized becomes potential for failure. Um, I also think that there's a natural human psychological factor, which is resistance to change. People tend to resist change even when it's in their best interest. And organizations are often built to resist change. You know, when you, when you set up your bank, you try to, you know, systematize, here's how we're going to do things. Maybe you hire an Accenture for somebody to define, this is how we're going to do our processes. And then you train everybody in those processes. And if anyone does it another way, they get written up. And if they do it a different way too many times, they get fired. And so a lot of the sort of industrialization mindset of companies says, figure out the right way to do it and make sure everybody does it in the same way. And then all of a sudden you say, no, 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 actually, we need to find a completely different way of doing that, but also maybe everything. We need to transform. And so organizations are often not designed and built primarily for transformation, but rather for stasis and then minor, mild iteration and optimization over time. And so uh, there's just a lot of uh, potholes along the way when you try to say, you know, I want to change everything. And, you know, like even humans, it's like, you know, you've got to get people on board with the change. And when you, like, one of the things I believe, I don't have any data to support this, but I think there's like a small percentage of people in the world that really love change. And I think I'm one of those people, you know, like I would be bored to death if stuff was the same all the time. You know, I love the idea. Oh, let's, let's blow it up. Let's do something different. Let's transform. But I've learned over time that most people don't share that love of change. A lot of people just kind of much happier, if, like they kind of know what their job is and they understand how it works and they've sort of figured out how to be successful and they'd rather you didn't mess with it. And that's understandable. It's understandable. And so when you have some new vision of how the organization should work and how we should interact with our customers and what our products should be and how they should be distributed, people often don't get as excited as you want them to be. And some people are downright threatened by. And also the truth is in large enterprises, not, you know, change is not always good for everybody, right? If we're going to move to a more digital form of customer interaction, we may not need as many people in the call center. Or if we're moving to more online ways of, of selling our products, we may not need as many stores or as large a store, or we may not need as many associates in our stores and all these types of things over time, you know, and people aren't stupid. They see that these new digital things may displace them. If we're going to put in a whole new digital stack that's based on Java, 
the guy who's been there for 30 years and is an expert cobalt programmer and his value is in the fact that he knows how these ancient mainframe systems work that nobody else knows how they how they work and that's all going to be replaced by some modern uh, stack which a bunch of kids out of college are willing to work for half the price know how to do well that doesn't sound super good for that person and so sometimes people who develop the a view rightly or wrongly sometimes rightly that the transformation isn't going to be good for them uh, become enemies of that transformation. They become saboteurs. They uh, huddle together. They try to figure out how to undermine it, and even when it's necessary for the long-term success of the company. So, you know, as soon as someone gives you a big budget and tells you that you are in charge of digital transformation, you've got a target on your back. Um, there's somebody who either wants the job instead of you or wants to stop the transformation. And so you have to be able to defend that while you also work and guiding everyone on board and also work on actually getting work done. So it's a tricky job. How hard was that for doing that with an organization like the NFL? Like, was that a hard process or were they already bought in early uh, to do this because they're forward thinking or they're forced to be forward thinking because they're trying to cater to a young audience? Like I went to two Eagles games uh, this year. And I was shocked because you know how expensive the tickets are. And I would say 80% of the people are under the age of 40 who attend uh, the Eagles games. And I saw the same thing out in LA watching the Rams. I mean, I thought with the expense of the tickets, it'd be more middle-aged people. So is that force an organization because of the, the makeup of the employees, the age makeup or the age makeup of their customers? Does that force them to move quicker than they necessary, maybe even want to move. What did you find working with the NFL? Um, you know, almost all the companies I work with are some form of large enterprise. And they're all similar in that they have diverse group of people that work there. And there's a minority of people generally who are really excited about change. And there's a majority of people who just want to do their jobs and would rather not. And, and, and that's true of almost every company that I've ever worked with. I think that's just human nature. And so that's, you know, that's the challenge. Whether the company is targeting an older demographic or a younger demographic, I think I haven't seen that big of a difference. It may be that in some smaller companies, like startup companies, those types of companies, you see a different profile. That's not who I work with. So I don't really have so much experience, but I, I imagine that there are small companies that that have a, a sort of a different profile that attract more people, larger exactly. percentage of people who are uh, enthusiasts about change and transformation. But when you're talking about any large company, uh, and we've worked with dozens and dozens and dozens, um, you know, I think it's a similar profile. It's just a natural byproduct of the fact that those companies are made up of humans and those companies are structured as corporations. And when you have those types of situations, you, you have resistance always. And you should just anticipate it, know that it's par for the course. And there are fortunately many ways to overcome resistance. It's not always easy, but there are many tactics. And in my book, I go through, I think, 12 discrete tactics for addressing uh, resistance to change within any company. We have a question from the audience. Companies like Apple and Netflix can invest so much to create customer loyalty. What are the recommendations for small businesses with limited resources to create loyalty and how loyalty uh, can be built using digital marketing. Yeah, well, I would ask everyone to think about this for themselves. Are there any small businesses to whom you're fiercely loyal? 
What about you, Mark? Are there any small businesses that you're fiercely loyal to? I am super loyal to Golden Chopsticks, a Chinese restaurant down the street. I mean, I live in Philadelphia, and that is the only non-pure Chinese restaurant, like American-style Chinese restaurant, that I will eat at. In fact, they uh, refurbished their uh, facility uh, for seven months. I did not eat American-style Chinese food for seven months because their food is so awesome uh, that that's the only one I'll go to. We have five pizza places uh, within walking distance to me. I go to one because I think their um, pizza is superior and even a bicycle shop. I'll go further from one bicycle shop to another, one closer, but the other one does a better job uh, and quicker at fixing things. And and they're even a little bit more expensive than the closer Mm -hmm, one. mm -hmm. Yeah, so behind the um, question, I sense there's a presupposition, which is that it's easier for a big company to get customers to be loyal than it is for a small company. And I would actually argue that the opposite is true. First of all, if you're a large company, everything you do has to be on large scale to to work, right? You have such a much larger organization. If you're trying to make a change, you have to make it across so many more people. You have so many more customers to try to get to be loyal. Uh, there are many things that a small business can do that just aren't scalable. I mean, I think of a, uh, did you say, was a, did you say a bike shop was one of the examples you gave? Yeah. Yes. I would say, I, yeah. I also, in my town, I have a bike shop that we're fiercely loyal to, you know, because they can develop a personal connection. The guy who runs the bike shop, we develop a personal connection to, right? That's pretty hard to do if your yeah. bikes are us and you have 10,000 locations across the United States. So yeah, I mean, there are many things that you can do as a small business that you can't do as a big business. But let me be a little more specific to make sure I don't leave you with just an opinion, but some things you can do. In the book, I talk a lot about the the process for identifying changes to make to your customer experience to inspire love in your customer. And the best place to start is by looking for points of customer pain. If you study the process that your customers experience, that your customers have today, which you absolutely can do inexpensively, quickly as a small business without needing to be Apple. But just make sure you really understand. You can observe, you can ask questions, sit down with your customers, buy them a cup of coffee or offer to pay them $50 to spend an hour with you and uh, do that for 12 customers maybe. And seek to understand what their experience is. Why do they come? What, what creates the need? Let's say you're a tax accountant, right? Well, okay, what creates the need for them to go to a tax accountant? How do they pick a tax accountant? Why did they pick you? What happened when they first came to you as a tax accountant? Was there experience along the way? And what you're especially looking for is where were there points where they had a negative emotional moment, something that was confusing, disappointing, frustrating, angered them, whatever it may be. And you want to make sure you're trying to get them to be as candid as possible. Let them know this is helping you. It's not about only tell me the good stuff. Because those are your opportunities to improve your customer experience. And that is the best way to improve customer loyalty. Find the points where the customer has extra effort. You know, one of the reasons I'm loyal to Uber or, 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 or Lyft uh, is because they've made it so easy. There's so much less work for me to just call it. They come. I don't have to tell the driver where I'm going. I don't have to, when the car gets there, I don't have to pay the driver and deal with that. I just, I just get out of the car. Um, they've, they've identified moments in the, let's say, ground transportation experience that were previously just a little bit inconvenient. They weren't ruining my day, but when all of a sudden 
I don't have to deal with those things anymore. That is a, a sticky experience. That is an addictive experience. And so I think what you should do in any business, whether you're a bakery or a hardware store or a dry cleaner or whatever it is, is try to figure out, you know, I mean, just take dry cleaners, right? Are there things that are annoying about the dry cleaning experience? I mean, I won't even take time to go into them, but I'm guessing as soon as I ask that question, if you're like me, you're thinking, yes, there are definitely things about the experience of getting my clothes dry cleaned that is annoying or frustrating or whatever. Seek to identify those things and ask, are there some that I can get rid of? And some might be very difficult to get rid of. So maybe look for other ones. Some may be very costly to get rid of. Okay, well, you have to weigh the pros and cons. And there may be some that actually, once you understand them, you're like, wow, this would be really easy to get rid of. And those are the ones that are obviously the lowest hanging fruit and you want to start there. Well, what is the customer love digital transformation formula? I like that term in your book. Yeah. So <laughs> we talked earlier about the three parts of the formula to inspire customer love, right? To um, fully meet their needs, to occasionally delight them and to align with their values. But let's just take like, but like, how do you get there? Sometimes what happens is you, uh, you can envision, and even using the model that I talked about earlier, a moment ago about identifying all these customer points of pain, Let's say that leads you to envisioning a new customer journey and you say, oh, well, this is how it should be. You know, how do you actually get there? How do you go through this process? So the customer love digital transformation formula is a five-step process that I go through in the book to get from where you are now, wherever that may be, to the point where you are inspiring the love of even the most digitally centric customer that you have and creating a much more sticky and engaging experience and business and being deserving of more premium uh, pricing, uh, more frequent purchases, all those types of things. And so how do you do it? There's five steps and I'll say what they are quickly and then happy to talk about any of them in more detail. Yep. The first is to understand your customer. This is really very much what I was talking about a minute ago. In order to be able to more effectively, in order to be able to create an experience they're gonna love, you have to make sure you understand them. What do they like? What do they not like? What are their hopes, their fears, their dreams? Why are they doing business with you, et cetera? The second is to map the journey. And a moment ago, I was talking about identifying those points of pain. Mapping the journey is sort of in two halves. The first is understanding and mapping the current journey. So in step one, we understand the customer. In step two, we first understand what is their experience as they go through whatever journey it is associated with what your business offers, right? If you're a travel agent, it's obviously vacation planning. And so how do they decide to go on vacation? And what are the problems and challenges with that? And then how do they decide to go to a travel agent? And then how do they pick a destination? And then how do they book their reservation? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through the completion of the trip. And so understanding what all of those challenges, points of pain, what's the real world experience? And then as part of that second step, what would it be if it were optimal? What would be the vision of the perfect North Star version of that journey, where if you could deliver that experience to your customer, you would be able to stand toe to toe with any competitor as a superior experience. And then the third step is to build it. And in the book, I talk about using design thinking methods to break a vision of a complete customer journey into pieces and parts. For example, you've got to work on the app. You're going to create a chat bot. You need a content management system. You're going to have a data mark to, to drive personalization. Most of the time, that customer journey is a whole bunch of different components. You might call them products or touch points that need to be created. 
So you're going to break that down and then you're going to work, you're going to sequence them and work on those individually. And in the book, again, we talk a lot about using design thinking in order to do that. So that's the third step. Obviously, one could speak at great length about that, but I'm just giving you the high level. So those are the, the top three steps. Understand the customer, map the journey, and then build the future. And while you work on those three steps, there are two other processes you want to have happen in parallel. One is to optimize the present. Because when you go through the process that I described a moment ago of identifying what is that ideal future vision, you're probably going to come up with something that's quite ambitious, quite impactful, but which might be quite distant from where you are now. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. You're like, it's like that old joke where the guy, you know, I think it's, uh, is it Smothers Brothers? You know, I think the guy drives into a gas station and he pulls up and he says, you know, how do I get to Boston from here? And the guy says, oh, well, let's see. You could take the interstate. And, oh, no, that won't work. And, oh, well, you could you could take Route 36. Oh, and, no, and finally goes, you know, come to think of it, you can't get there from here, you know, which obviously is, you know, absurd. <laughs> but uh, sometimes you can feel. Oh, you're aging yeah, us right here. <laughs> well, maybe these people haven't heard the joke before and they think it's my original joke, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. point is. Uh, you can always get there, but sometimes it can seem intimidating and challenging of how do I transform what I've got into this vision of the future? And the answer is probably going to be, it's going to take time, maybe many quarters, maybe many years. And so while you're going through that ambitious, moving yourself towards the vision of the future that will set yourself up for success for the coming decades, you also need to be looking for little problems with little fixes. So you can keep delivering small incremental improvements to the customer experience quarter by quarter by quarter. And those can really add up and be very meaningful over time. And in the book, I talk about a lot of very specific techniques for identifying those, the low-hanging fruit, and getting them fixed quickly while you're simultaneously working on more ambitious transformation. And then the last step described in the book is lead the change. Of course, that's not really the last step sequentially, but I talk about it in the book last because I feel like it's better to kind of get a lay the, lay the land out, what do you got to do and then talk about what kind of a leader is needed in order to be able to be successful. But the last step is to understand many of the things we talked about earlier about resistance to change. How do you lead an organization? How do you structure teams? How do you inspire people to be willing to overcome their resistance and get on board with transformational change and believe that it's possible? When you're selling this internal, when you're selling this change internally, and before they even maybe bring you in, but they're maybe working with you on trying to sell mm -hmm. this, What's the biggest concern of management um, aside from cost? And what's the biggest landmine that you got to try to avoid? Well, you know, I, li I like the fact that you use the word concern because it, 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 um, it symbolizes the fact that most business decision-making is emotional. And the number one most powerful emotion, and again, I take that from your question about concern, is fear. Fear is what drives more decisions than anything. If we think about our own lives, there are probably many things we've done for other reasons, like hope and enthusiasm and love, but there's a lot of things we've probably done in our lives or decided not to do in our lives because of fear. And I think that the thing that the greatest concern uh, is fear of failure. The greatest concern, you know, if, if you, there's a, there's a saying uh, that, you know, that kind of comes out of the world of self-help, you know, that you ask somebody, what would you do in your life if you knew you could not fail. And most people will tell you a completely different version of what they would do than what they're doing now, right? And that tells you right there that the choices that they're currently making are heavily influenced by their fear of failure. And now, of course, that's not to say failure is an illusion. 
failure, you know, things obviously can fail. But I think that the thing that most uh, companies are concerned about when asked to fund big transformational initiatives is will it work? Because usually you could paint a picture that says, look, if we transform our customer experience to become this, we will be the leader in the marketplace. Customers will love this. This will be extremely successful. I mean, you can do research. You can create prototypes. You can do customer research to, to provide data to support decision-making that says, if we do this, we will have a level of success. But the usual concern is, yeah, but will it really work? Will we really be able to do this? Or like the Forbes stats that you cited earlier, will we invest a whole ton of money and create a whole ton of disruption in two years from now be looking at something that didn't really proceed according to plan. That's the biggest, um, the biggest reason that um, people hold back. And I think the irony is, first of all, if you're worried that digital transformation will not proceed according to plan, you will be, um, you will be made right, <laughs> you know, because it will not proceed according to plan, period. There is no chance that the digital transformation will proceed according to plan. It will encounter all kinds of unforeseen challenge and obstacles along the way. So if you're looking for a smooth, predictable process, digital transformation is not for you. But for companies today, especially in our increasingly digitally centric world, made even more digitally centric by the accelerating factor of COVID, that's a little bit like saying to the person in the burning building, isn't it risky to jump out of the building and try to hit the trampoline that the firefighters are holding on the ground level? Yes. Could I miss the trampoline when I jump? Yes. But staying in the building is probably a worse option. And furthermore, there are a lot of things that we can do in planning and executing a digital transformation to massively reduce the risk. And I talk a lot about those things in my book. And, and lastly, I would say that the truth is that failure is always a choice because when you embark upon ambitious and transformational change, you are starting out towards a goal and you can always choose and, and you're going to encounter problems and obstacles. So you're always faced with the choice of doing one of two things, to find a way to persist, to, to adapt, to pivot, to, to deal with obstacles and proceed towards your goal or to declare a failure and stop trying to proceed towards your goal. So for anyone that's concerned about failure that's outside of their control, I would say, well, the one thing you can feel good about is failure is always a choice. And so don't choose it. But that does mean you may need to spend more than anticipated or take more time than anticipated to get to your goal. But if you're committed to the goal, and you recognize that it's the future of the company, instead of having a mindset of, will it succeed or will it fail? It's better to have a mindset of, this is the, the, the outcome we're committed to. Now, what can we do to get there as fast as possible and as low risk as possible? And if you take that mindset, then there are a lot of things you can do to optimize, such as doing the right kinds of customer research, creating proof of concepts, creating technology uh, demos to evaluate different ways of approaching things from a technology perspective, making sure you're using agile practices to speed up your uh, development processes, you know, looking at how the data of your company is managed in a way that's keyed properly and kept clean so that you can leverage it to be the asset that it really should be, and on and on and on and on. And of course, I go into a lot of these things in the book. So once you take a mindset of we're not going to worry about failure, we're going to anticipate problems, and we're going to not choose failure but we're going to use smart methods to try to get as quickly as possible to success, then hopefully you feel less stressed and less worried 
And the book is designed to give you a lot of tools to use to try to navigate your way to success. So which industries still haven't gone through digital transformation, but would benefit by it? Well, you know, I don't know that industries, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I, um, I don't think there's any industry that is not um, impacted in a major way by digital and whose customers have not gone substantially through digital transformation. So whatever industry you're in, you're serving people, right? And those people, the vast majority of them anyway, are living a digitally centric lifestyle, which means that they personally have undergone a digital transformation in their lives. They're sleeping with their phone beside their bed, probably. They're checking their iPhone yeah. 125 times a day, yeah. right? This is the customer that you interact with. And, you know, obviously there are some industries that have moved more slowly healthcare, government, education, manufacturing. And there are other industries that have moved more rapidly travel, retail, media, and entertainment. So the competitive landscape of how you know, digitally outstanding, how digitally elegant your competitors are is going to vary based on, um, on uh, which industry you're in. I think that in a way, it's a huge boon to be in an industry which has been slower with digital transformation because it gives you the opportunity to choose to be the one that leaps ahead and differentiates yourself more rather than playing catch up. Um, so, but I think your question was whether there are any industries that have not gone through digital transformation. I think, I don't think I would say there are because everyone's customers have. And then it's just a question of, as far as individual companies are concerned, how much are they disappointing in letting down their customers? And that is more about a little, tends to be a little bit more of a company, a company issue than for an entire industry. Uh, question from the audience. What company inspires you digitally and why? You know, a lot of these... Um, like the, the, the Lyft or Instacart, you know, I think I'm very inspired, Airbnb, I'm very inspired by these platform companies that have figured out, I think they're connecting to like the future of work. Uh, this whole idea of the gig economy that we started talking about a few years ago has now transformed to the point that some of the most successful, fastest growing companies are not employing the people who are delivering the services but are acting as a facilitation mechanism for things that people want to have happen. So, you know, like whether that's an Instacart or an Uber or a Lyft or an Airbnb. And so I think these are some of the companies that are really on what I think is kind of the leading edge of the future. And I'm not saying every industry or everything will go there, but it's fascinating to think about how that same principle could be applied to potentially any industry. And I think we're going to see that idea of the platform rather than the, you know, even look at something like eBay, you know, compared to a traditional retailer, eBay is one of the largest retailers in the world. And yet they don't have to, they don't have any merchandising people. They don't have to carry any inventory, Alibaba even bigger and the same kind of mindset. So I think these are the companies to me that are the most interesting and inspiring and the most forward thinking. Uh, what are the best social media tools to get insights into what customers think about your brand and how to get them to buy your product or service? You know, I think uh, a couple of things. First of all, there's a whole category of, of products that allow you to do social listening. Um, is it uh, Radiant 6, I think it's called, from sale, that's now owned by Salesforce. And there are a number of other products as well. I don't know all the 
products by name, but which will essentially ingest like massive numbers of tweets and other social media posts and do sentiment analysis and help you get a sense of what people are saying about you online and in forums and on, on social media and stuff. So there's a whole category of applications. I don't have one particular to recommend. Uh, I, in my company, I'm not the person who sits and, and does that. Other folks do. So I'd have to ask them which tools they like the best today. But certainly think that using those types of tools is, a, um, is one component, valuable component of customer research. Um, you know, At the same time, I think you have to be multi-pronged because people who say things on social media tend to be, it's absolutely worth learning what they have to say, but they also tend to be at the outside of their level of customer satisfaction. In other words, if you think about most customers and their level of satisfaction, it's like a bell curve, right? I mean, you like to think everyone, every customer of your company is super happy, but in reality, you probably have some super happy customers, some really unhappy customers, and some customers that are in the middle, you know, they're happy enough, but they're not like, you know, felling. So uh, if you if you think about that as a sort of a typical customer distribution, if you look at Amazon reviews or you look at typical social media posts, it's an inverted bell curve. People are either posting because they love something or because they hate something, and they're the least likely to post if they say, ah, I tried this new cereal today. It's all right. I might have it again. I might not. You know, it's cereal. What can I say? Like nobody posts that typically, you know? And so it's not representative. It's this kind of selective thing of people posting when they feel very strongly. So that's still information that you want. You just have to know that you can't rely on it independently as a research gauge because it doesn't represent the whole middle, the majority of your customers who probably are neither lovers nor haters. And so you need other methods like uh, like surveying and, and interviewing and ethnography and, and things like that. So this probably goes along the lines of this. You wrote, when trying to understand your customer, you have to segment your model, deciding which categories and dimensions are most relevant to your business. How do you go about doing that? Uh, You know, I I think um, you start with the obvious. Most companies, you can say, well, we have some fundamentally different types of customers. Example I give in the book is, well, if you look at Microsoft, they've got you know, at home home users, consumers who buy computers for their homes or buy an Xbox. There are businesses who buy, you know, software for their businesses, things like SQL Server and other software development tools that they use to run their business. And then you have PC manufacturers who license Microsoft Windows and other products to put on the PCs like laptops that they sell, companies like Dell or Lenovo. So these are obviously very, very different types of customers. Um, but then that's usually not a sufficiently granular segmentation model. So then when you're going to go into any one of those, you want to understand, uh, let's take the home PC, the home Microsoft uh, segment. Well, within that, uh, you know, what are the, first of all, I always like to look at what are the characteristics that separate customers from non-customers? Very often, there's a lot of focus on segmenting different types of customers, which is important too. But, you know, how do I, how do I, sort of predict who's someone who's likely to be a Microsoft home customer versus somebody who's not. Can I look at that by age or by gender or by some psychographic component or something like that? Um, and then the other important question is, do these groups break into some smaller segments where I would need to speak to them or interact with them in a different way? So for example, if you look at people who are home purchasers of PCs, there are some who may be very technical, you know, someone who buys a very high-end PC and they're installing the top version of Windows and they're, you know, 
adding all kinds of external devices and doing all kinds of sophisticated stuff, running virtual machines. My my son is he runs a Discord server. I don't even honestly entirely know what Discord is, but he's running a Discord <laughs> server off of his home computer and he's running virtual five virtual machines at the same time, right? Versus uh, perhaps someone like my wife who uses a computer also, of course, she has a Mac, she runs her business off of it. But you know, if she if the printer isn't printing from her computer, she calls my son to say, why is the printer not printing, right? So this is a very different type, this is a very different segment. And so if you're, for example, advertising, or you're looking to say, well, what features do we need in the next version of our product? You're probably gonna have very different answers if you're trying to satisfy my son versus if you're trying to satisfy my wife. So this is the process of going through and segmenting your customers. And you know, one of the quotes that I use in the book, and I'm actually not sure where this came from, I didn't make it up, but uh, the quote is, um, uh, you know, like snowflakes, all customers are unique. And also like snowflakes, many are extremely similar. And so know that yes, every human being is totally different. And yet what you wanna do with segmentation is kind of say, yeah, but there's a bunch that are kind of like this. And there's some that are kind of like that and some that are kind of like this. And you need to figure out for yourself how far you wanna go. Cause you could segment all your customers into three groups. You could segment them into 30 groups. You could segment them into 300 groups. There are certainly segmentation models, psychographic segmentation models that you can buy that segment everybody into one of 122 types or things like that. And so you need to consider, well, how am I applying this segmentation? What am I actually using it for? Is it to drive advertising slogans? Is it to drive product development? Am I using it to drive personalization? Or am I going to send the same message to everybody because it's a Super Bowl commercial? And then that will help you figure out how granular of a segmentation is useful because more granular is more accurate but at the same time, it's a little bit more unwieldy. And so you have to find the sweet spot for the given application and the given type of business. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Your book is awesome. And any leader who's thinking or is already running, and every organization is like a digital organization, uh, needs to read this book, and especially their board members, so they know what they're investing in. They have, absolutely have to read your book. Wish you the best luck uh, and uh, look forward to when you decide to do a second book. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, thanks everybody for being here. Great to talk to all of you. Great questions. Have a great uh, rest of your weekend, everyone. Look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.